Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. Hard to believe it wasn't too terribly long ago that I was on the air last, but uh, regardless of how long it may seem, um, nonetheless, it's always good to be on the air. I will tell you, um, going into um, tonight's um, podcast segment episode to um, Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy, I will tell you all this uh, for this episode. Um, I think it's fair to say that what we've learned about Nathan Hale um, since we've first begun this uh, podcast topic series, uh, Nathan Hale is a very um, fascinating individual. Matter of fact, I didn't really know anything about him until, you know, a couple of years ago. And then um, I was eager to find a book that was uh, written on him and, I'm very um, thankful that I um, pursued that, and uh, M. William Phelps's book on Nathan Hale has certainly been a wonderful read, uh, to say the least. But um, I, the reason why I'm probably uh, mentioning with regards to this episode in particular is because uh, we're going to be focusing on the last um, day or two of Nathan Hale's life. As we learned from the previous uh, episode, Nathan um, was lured into a trap. You know, as much as we want to believe that whomever we meet is, for one, a nice person, and that what they share to us is relevant, um, and um, how do I say it? Not just relevant, but uh, it's something that we can relate to. And we want to believe that uh, whoever we're talking to is certainly as um, accountable, mature, um, is the real deal. But oftentimes, um, maybe I wouldn't say often, uh, sometimes we um, do have to find out for ourselves that you know whoever we're talking to, they may look nice on the outside but we don't know what they could be like behind closed doors. And in some instances, we don't know what they could be like to other people. In other words, do they treat people, say, within their own family they, the way they deserve to be treated? Do they treat others in the same way that we as individuals want to be treated? I mean, we don't know. And sadly, uh, for Nathan Hale, given that he was um, a novice or a beginner at spying, Little did he know that he was talking to a man whom was ten times a, a better um, con man, a better um, expert at spying than Nathan himself would ever have been in his lifetime. I would say probably Robert Rogers was probably more than just ten times better. I would say that he was easily over ten times, probably say twenty times at best. Uh but the sad part is that Nathan is now in the hands of the enemy. Not only has Robert Rogers lured him into a trap, but um, but uh, Robert Rogers has also um, he also set up a uh, plan in place to have um, soldiers, or I should say, scouts, around the outside of his home. Basically, come in with no advance, with no warning for Nathan, only to surround him. So sadly, you know, 
as where we ended from uh, the previous um, night that I was on the air uh, just a couple of days ago, once Nathan had been uh, captured, he pretty much had come to a realization now that he had just eaten his last, he had eaten his last meal as a free man. Who's to say that he, if he had even eaten all of the meal, but that's really not the point. The point is, is that Nathan went inside, he finished a conversation one night, but little did he know that with the consumption of the alcohol that he had, that he was giving away also vital information. He was saying everything that was on his mind, and it was playing right into the hands of Robert Rogers. Little did Nathan know that when he went inside Robert Rogers' house, that something so innocent would now all of a sudden become something so unthinkable to where innocence was now taken from him. Innocence in the form of, you know, wanting to meet people and no matter where he went and with the assumption that nothing bad could happen to me. I think we learned early on from the prologue when Nathan and the friend of his were uh, journeying to Long Island and they were caught in a bad storm and even as they managed to survive that ordeal, Nathan said nothing would ever hap- bad could ever happen to me, even in the midst of a bad storm. Wishful thinking, as much as we all would like to believe that nothing bad could happen to us, we have to be reminded of the fact that there's always that um, percentage chance that it will happen. The bigger question is, is are we going to be ready for it? How are we going to respond? Unfortunately, Nathan just simply did not know how to respond to what has now um, taken place. So in this uh, podcast segment episode, um, folks, we're going to, again, talk about his final days and and ultimately uh, his death. You know, none of us live forever. Of course, you know, we all would like to think that during the American Revolutionary War that if anyone died, they just, they died on the battlefield or they Uh, died from a disease, uh, because many Revolutionary War soldiers did die from diseases. Many of them died as as a result of being prisoners of war. As a matter of fact, more deaths um, from the American Revolutionary War were a result of being uh, prisoners than versus dying on a battlefield. But we do forget that there were uh, those whom um, died as a result of uh, going behind enemy lines. Nathan was the first. After all, he was the death. He After all, he is America's first spy, but yet little does Washington know that America's first spy is now in the hands of the enemy. So I think it's fair to say that we need to uh, get the show um, rolling here uh, as we have a lot of um, important information to cover, and we also need to um, do a lot of reflecting. This is where we really need to put ourselves in Nathan Hale's shoes more than ever. So here we go. Uh, What did Robert Rogers force Nathan Hale to admit over breakfast on September 21st, 1776? We're not for sure if Robert Rogers said this. It's not in quotes. But we have to suspect that Robert Rogers would have have, uh, said something uh, to the following extent as to what I'm going to tell you all here. Other than... Other than the fact that Rogers himself had convinced Nathan that he was a friend, Nathan 
was forced to uh, reveal to Rogers that he got sent over to enemy lines by none other than General George Washington. I can't imagine having to confess that to Robert Rogers, and little did Nathan Hale know that Robert Rogers himself offered his assistance to George Washington early on in the, in the conflict, only for Washington to turn him down because Washington himself was convinced Robert Rogers was in fact a spy. I often wonder just how different things would have been had Washington not turned him down, especially at this part of the uh, conflict and knowing that um, there's so much uncertainty uh, with the New York campaign at this time. There are going to be a lot of what-ifs that we might have to um, think about going forward, especially with this episode. But um, after um, Robert Rogers had... Um, forced Nathan to reveal why he was um, over on enemy lines. Rogers soon afterwards um, went about accusing Nathan of the worst crime a soldier could commit. And do you all have any idea what the worst crime a soldier could commit uh, during the time of the Revolutionary War? Spying. Remember spying was something that the uh, British Army uh, frowned upon. It was just a, it was a, an improper way to go about uh, conducting business. It was an improper way of trying to get the upper hand um, on the opposition. So um, for Nathan Hale, he his defense is simply the following: he is vehement he's vehemently denied the accusation that Robert Rogers has uh, imposed on him by using um, the Dutch schoolmaster's story as a means to get out of the messy situation. But Robert Rogers is not uh, buying this. He's not falling for it. He's pretty firm. I mean, this is somebody that you don't want to mess with, regardless of whether you're an outsider or even an insider for that matter. Uh, the bottom line is is that uh, if you fall uh, victim to Robert Rogers' um, uh, trickery or if you don't meet his expectations, um, I don't know what the consequences are, but the consequences are not good. Let's just put it that way. So yes, Robert Rogers did not buy Nathan's response. He seized him right away. And once... He, he got led outside. Nathan was surrounded by several Queen's Rangers troop scouts whom went as far as doing, um, you know, to me it, it's uncalled for, but it's also um, the enemy's method of intimidation. The enemy decides to poke their muskets, being the Queen's uh, Rangers troop scouts present. They go about poking their muskets right into his face. Ooh, I don't know if they were fixed with bayonets and all that, but the bottom line is, you know, getting poked in your, you know, having muskets poked at your face, that's um, intimidating enough. How about making fun of them? <laughs> well, I should say this. Not only did they poke their muskets right into his face, but also into his chest. So they really, this is probably just the 101 part of letting him know that, that his fate is in their hands and that there's really just no way of getting out of this. 
they also um, went about making fun of him. Doesn't sound pretty, folks. And there are uh, multiple people whom are randomly showing up as well. And who are these multiple people? If they're, let's say, if they're not in the uh, British military, they are locals, locals in uh, Huntington, whom now have come to the realization who, in fact, this mystery man is. Because the mystery man um, had spoken to many of these people while he was passing through Huntington shortly after he be he began his uh, mission uh, once having uh, departed off the uh, sloop Schuyler and uh, venturing his way into the heart of Long Island. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk to the locals to get information. Now all of a sudden these same people are, are um, seeing you up close now, but this time they, ha they have all the advantages to their side by telling Robert Rogers and his uh, troop scouts from the Queens Rangers that, hey, this is the guy who was asking us these um, suspicious questions. This is the guy who wanted to know where our loyalties stood. This is the guy who, um, who is uh, curious to know about British troop strength and where the British would um, be making their next moves. Well, given Nathan Hale was wearing civilian clothes the entire time, what consequences or what consequence followed? The fundamental rule was that any active soldier whom got caught behind enemy lines dressed in civilian attire would get executed. Gosh, um, it's a hefty um, price to pay. Is it fair to say that maybe if Nathan Hale was wearing military attire that he might have um, been spared? One thing that could be fair to say is that if he was wearing military attire, perhaps the chances of his getting caught might have been reduced. But at the same time, Robert Rogers would have found a, would have found a way to have tracked this guy down through other contacts in his inner circle. So I don't think it would have made a difference what Nathan was wearing, whether it was civilian or military clothes. The bottom line is that if Nathan was caught one way or the other, knowing what has now happened and knowing what the fate of his uh, sentence awaits, there would have been no way of getting out of this altogether. But to make matters worse, folks, Nathan Hale will not be allowed, Nathan Hale will not be allowed to defend himself. In other words, there's not going to be a trial, folks. Nobody's going to be able to intervene and stop this. In other words, there are no such things as Miranda rights. If you're captured, that's one thing, but no one's going to say to you that you have the right to remain silent, that anything you say can and would be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be, one will be provided to you without charge. There's no such things as Miranda rights back then. As a matter of fact, though, Miranda rights won't come about until about the mid-1960s um, 
not to get off track, but um, if you look up uh, Ernesto Miranda, uh, that is where uh, Miranda rights come about as a result of um, of his uh, filing um, a case um, involving him uh, to the United States Supreme Court where uh, he had not been given um, formal rights as to what he had been accused of. And so basically the, the United States Supreme Court uh, ruled that any time someone is uh, arrested on the spot, they must be read formal rights as to what they are being um, charged with. And, um, you know, the formal rights of, you know, the right to remain silent and anything that you say can and would be used against you. So this way they can't, uh, law enforcement officials cannot force an automatic coercion into a crime. So for Nathan Hale, um, nobody's going to defend him, but the bottom line is, is that he's not going to have a trial. He's not going to be able to um, go before um, British uh, officers of the um, higher um, inner circle. He's not going to be able to go before them. I mean, he might be able to talk to one or two of them to explain what he was doing, but there won't be a, a courtroom hearing. Nathan did make one last plea for defense, or I should say for defense purposes, by saying that he was not a rebel soldier. Well, Robert Rogers still wasn't buying it. As for Nathan now, he got placed on board a vessel called the Halifax, which would send him to New York City. Did Nathan Hale still retain anything in the midst of being captured? Yes, he did. He still retained his Yale College diploma along with notes, drawings, and maps from the first days of the mission. Nathan was getting, would be getting sent to the Beekman estate where he would meet up close with none other than uh, lead uh, general being uh, that of General William Howe, who was in charge of the New York campaign on the British side and he would be forced to answer the accusations against him to General William Howe. For Nathan Hale, he personally believes that he, that he well, for one, he's going to come clean, and two, by coming clean, he personally believes that maybe, just maybe, there might still be a light at the end of the tunnel that, that if I come clean and tell everything without lying to General Howe, that, um, that maybe General Howe might grant me some uh, form of clemency or leniency, and instead of um, getting sentenced to death, that maybe some other uh, punishment could come about. I'm not sure what other punishment could be uh, doled out. That's the unfortunate thing. What was one reason behind why General Washington and Lieutenant Colonel Knowlton chose Nathan Hale for this particular mission? Well, for one, Nathan had an immense amount of scientific knowledge. Of course, when we, when we think of science, sometimes we have tendencies to think about uh, conducting lab experiments and also looking at um, objects from a microscope. But when we think of, but there are other realms of science, say like engineering, for example. So, I mean, Nathan didn't study engineering. Of course, I don't, I mean, yes, engineering is one of those professions that's been around for a long time, but, um, but the reason why Nathan had such an immense amount of scientific knowledge 
was largely in part because um, Nathan um, studied structures well. So in other words, Washington and Knowlton wanted someone not so much to go behind enemy lines for intelligence purposes, or, or I should say basic intelligence purposes, but they wanted someone, being that of Nathan, to go about um, recognizing the enemy structures. And by doing so, he could uh, draw his own versions of British forts and columns, including the estimation of the soldier um, size or the uh, strength of Howe's army. So by getting all of these uh, stats and these um, drawings, for Nathan to be able to return back and give all this, this is what Washington needs in order to go about modifying his situation so that his army does not face total annihilation. Nathan knew deep down when leaving um, his camp for the secret mission that he was playing a larger role in the greater cause behind independence from England. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that um, Nathan knew that he was in fact playing a larger role. I'm also wondering if Nathan knew that there was a chance that he probably would not come home. Or what I should say is maybe not come home. I think it, it I think it's fair to say that maybe Nathan knew for himself that there was a chance of his not making it back on the American side. It, it doesn't sound like Nathan was a type to live in fear. And as much as we want to believe that this mission that he was um, partaking in was one that was as secure as possible, it's also... Um, it's also one that uh, can't be ignored based on the fact that Nathan did give himself away by wearing civilian clothes, carrying his Yale College diploma with him. Yes, you want to be able to have some form of identity, but the fact that his Yale College diploma had his name on it, his real name, that to me, is, it's like selling yourself. It's, it's you know selling yourself to uh, the enemy, and then not um, having the best of disguise. All I can say is that um, yes, Nathan was playing a large role in the greater cause, but we still have to wonder if he had worn military clothing, and had he not set everything on his mind to Robert Rogers. Could Nathan have still um, eluded Rogers? You know, and we have to wonder, what if Nathan had said, um, I'll have to let you know when I'm able to meet with you? Well, the problem is, back then there were no such things as telephones. There was no email or texting. So, for Robert Rogers, if Nathan uh, had turned him down, I'm sure Rogers would have looked at him and said, Why are you turning me down? I'm your friend. So I think it's sad to say this, folks, that one way or another, no matter what Nathan could have done to have modified this current situation, sadly he still was going to, sadly he still would have gotten caught. That's just how good of a um, of a spy Robert Rogers was. Robert Rogers, yes, was a loner, but yet he could still um, have people below him do work for him. 
and and once they got intelligence from other sources, it went straight to Rogers, and Rogers was there to uh, meet his target, and the target um, simply had no way of knowing what he had gotten himself into, and that's what sadly has happened now with Nathan Hale. Were there other tactics besides death by hanging for which British war officers could impose upon rebel prisoners within New York? I found this to be very interesting, and uh, I don't think many of us would ever suspect that this particular example that I'm going to give you all in terms of uh, other tactics uh, used uh, besides death by hanging involving rebel prisoners. I mean, other than, say, like a prison facility, you know, most of us do think of uh, the, the uh, British uh, warships in New York where um, rebel prisoners uh, were sent to and they died a very inhumane way. Well, believe it or not, folks, I was very stunned by the fact that um, many prisoners, rebel prisoners, that is, got sent to churches. Churches? Aren't they supposed to be a place where people could could worship uh, freely or they could worship without uh, having anyone above them uh, threaten them? Well, uh, the answer is yes and no, but of course the yes and no part would have to be saved uh, for a whole other um, subject. But for the British, a strategy of theirs was to send as many uh, prisoners to churches where they could get um, watched over, or I should say supervised, from balconies and landings. So in other words, officers would um, watch over the prisoners via balconies and landings. So it would be fair to say that these prisoners are probably all stationed in the pews or stationed, um, if not if not like sitting right at the pews, they are sitting um, not far from where uh, windows are. Well, the sad part about um, sending so many rebel prisoners to churches was that the churches ultimately became dungeons. The churches became overcrowded. And if that's not bad enough, folks, uh, the windows, the windows are barred. They're barred up, meaning that um, by barring up the windows, you're, the prisoners aren't going to find a way to escape. But if, but the escape part isn't, isn't what the, um, isn't what the British officials are really uh, worried about, by barring up. Um, by barring up the windows, rebel prisoners become desperate for the most essential thing, fresh air. You know, we need to breathe, but when you have too many men um, packed side by side, it's hard to get air. It's hard to get clean air. So, Things got so bad, folks, that um, scores of men were crammed together, whom at times became desperate for breath of air, that they would resort to climbing on one another's backs just to get a couple of clean air breaths. I can't imagine having to get on someone else's back 
just to get the slightest amount of fresh air. And if that's not bad enough, folks, uh, how about um, lack of um, lack of um, accessibility to um, adequate food and fresh water? What I mean by adequate food is food that would be enough to say last you one or two days, but food that is not spoiled, food that's uh, still uh, what we would call um, clean to eat. So food and fresh water are not accept are not accessible to the rebel prisoners. But what did the uh, British officials decide to do, folks? They decided to do the opposite. They forced rebel prisoners to eat spoiled food and drink foul water. Disgusting, cruel, and unusual punishment, to say the least. And I should point out, folks, that um, that there were instances in Philadelphia, and yes, folks, I know that's where the Continental Congress is. Yes, I know that's where the Declaration of Independence was signed, and then eventually in 1787 the U.S. Constitution was. But we should point out that in the early years of the American Revolutionary War, Philadelphia, being um, America's largest city, was predominantly loyalist, amongst its people versus patriot. And yes, the Quakers, for example, claimed to be neutral. But you know what many Quakers did? They, uh, behind closed doors, they would um, not only just side with loyalists, but they would see to it that rebel prisoners whom were stationed in Philadelphia got treated inhumanely. They would often throw raw meat at prisoners and force them to eat it on top of pouring water onto the floors and making the prisoners lick the water from the floor. People, I'm not trying to disgust you all. I really am not trying to gross you all out, but these are the, these kinds of um, acts of barbarism did go on during the Revolutionary War. And uh, it wasn't just... Uh, British officials doing this kind of inhumane stuff to uh, rebel prisoners. Um, historians also know that uh, patriots did some um, inhumane things to uh, Tory, or I should say to British prisoners of war as well. So we do need to be reminded that it was just not one side that was doing all of the uh, acts of inhumanity. Both sides were. Uh, but nonetheless, I can't imagine being a prisoner in a, in a church and now all of a sudden I don't have access to fresh air or even ac have access to uh, fresh food and fresh water. There's no such things, things. There's no such thing, folks, as Brita water filters. There's no bottled water. It, it, it's, it's a very, um, we just have to be reminded that, uh, that just because you were a prisoner of war, that did not mean that you got to have your uh, rights read to you. It didn't mean that you uh, could write a letter to your loved one whenever you wanted to. You, you pretty much died a very slow death. Whom would Nathan Hale meet first before General Howe? The man's name was Provost Marshal William Cunningham. He was an officer who knew how to carry out punishments against rebel troops involving uh, severe war crimes like spying. And if that wasn't bad enough, prior to the Revolutionary War, 
Provost Marshal William Cunningham was involved in human trafficking. I hate to say this, folks, but uh, human trafficking is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. Doesn't make it right, but it has. When Nathan met face-to-face with General William Howe, is it fair to say Hale's disguise got entirely revealed? Yes, he immediately revealed his official name, army, rank, and purpose behind coming into enemy corners. All right, yes, it would be easy to think that, okay, if I've revealed my true name, my army rank status, and the reason for why I'm coming in, why I came into enemy corners, that might take some of the, um, some of the uh, pressure off of me. It's easier said than done. One British soldier sometime later revealed how he overheard Nathan Hale say that his wish was to have better served his country to General William Howe. General Howe, according to the soldier, did um, display a sense of empathy towards Hale. However, there is a stipulation here. General William Howe, even though he is the the chief guru of the New York campaign on the British side. He's taken the place of General Thomas Gage. For General William Howe, there is a problem. He lacks the authority to stop the execution. He's following King George III's orders. Folks, there's a, the only person who could stop this execution would be King George III, but the, the problem is that he's back in England, 3,000 miles away across the Atlantic Ocean. And yes, Nathan Hale could have written, if, they, if he, they had allowed him to, yes, he could have written a letter. But who's not to say that the letter wouldn't have arrived to King George III within a couple of weeks? We're probably talking months, folks, at best, maybe three, four months for all we know, by the time King George III received the letter, if it, if it even was allowed to have happened, who's not to say Nathan Hale would have already been dead? So, yes, even unfortunately, yes, it is good to know that at least General Howe did um, display a sense of empathy, but at the same time, General Howe has, lacks the authority to stop the execution. If he didn't follow King George III's orders, he probably would have been court-martialed for it. The evening of September 21st, 1776, saw Marshal William Cunningham take Nathan Hale to the greenhouse on the Beekman estate where he got placed under protective custody with two armed guards stationed outside. Now, I uh, read about this individual, and I'm going to mention him again um, after tonight's podcast segment. I will uh, more than likely mention about this man again in the epilogue. But I know that most of us have never heard of him. I didn't know anything about him until I read the book. But he, his name is Captain John Montressor. He did learn of Hale's capture, including uh, the confiscation of drawings and maps. But John Montressor was rather interested in Nathan's work. Matter of fact, he even went before um, Marshal Provost William Cunningham and asked um, Cunningham if it would be okay to allow um, Nathan Hale the right to shelter inside his own tent. That's a very um, 
noble uh, gesture, knowing that, you know, yes, you all have this prisoner of war, and that even a prisoner of war um, should be treated as humanely as possible, despite, you know, having committed the most uh, serious of grievances by this time being that of a uh, spying. So, um, believe it or not, um, Marshal, um, Provost Marshal William Cunningham did, in fact, um, allow Nathan the right to shelter inside Montressor's tent, which was located nearby an artillery park north of the uh, Beekman estate. Did Captain Montressor find Nathan Hale somebody worth talking to? Yes, he did. Montressor, for one, viewed Hale as a sincere and polite gentleman. In other words, Nathan Hale, yes, I probably would have been scared out of my wits, but at the same time, I would have had to have kept my composure if I was Nathan Hale. We all would have had to have, because if Nathan kept uh, fretting, if he kept panicking, he if he you know, screamed and yelled. It would have, one, caused a lot of commotion, and two, who's not to say that he might have just gotten just shot right away. But the bottom line is that uh, Nathan Hale is keeping his composure as intact as possible, and he did, and he did go about conversing, obviously, with uh, Captain Montressor. He was very polite to him. He did not uh, badmouth... Uh, Robert Rogers. He did not even badmouth General William Howell. He was polite. Secondly, um, Montressor saw Hale as a man of deep faith, based upon what the prisoner himself knew regarding uh, what lied ahead. Nathan has already been told, folks, that he's going to be executed. I can't imagine knowing deep down inside that there's no way to get out of this. But yet, Nathan also has to remind himself left and right that, hey, look, I took a risk. Yes, I'm paying for it, but somebody had to do it. And if I didn't do it, who was going to do it? I'm sure somebody else would have done it. But could they have done it any better or any differently? And if they had gotten caught, they would be in the same shoes as I am. So, of course, something will eventually have to change for the Continental Army in order for spying as a um, work of art to be improved for the better. But for right now, it's taken a, um, a huge dent. So, yes, uh, Captain uh, Montressor uh, did see Hale as a man of deep faith. Nathan Hale asked uh, Captain Montressor for writing materials, given he wanted to write two letters, one to a family member and the other to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Knowlton, uh, Hale's commanding officer of uh, Knowlton's Rangers. Montressor gave Hale what he requested. Hale wrote, he wrote both letters, folks, he wrote both letters while chained at his feet and hands. You know, it's so easy to sometimes take writing for granted where you can just write and not have to worry about any obstacles, but I can't imagine uh, being tied to my hands and feet, most notably my hands, and trying to make out a complete sentence 
here I am, you know, and here I would be having to write a letter with um, quill pen and ink. Well, I'll tell you this much, folks. He did um, write both letters. But this question we need to know is this. Did Officer Thomas Knowlton survive the Battle of Harlem Heights? No. He was mortally uh, wounded in front of his own men while trying to rally troops to carry on their assault against the enemy. And by the time Nathan Hale finished writing his final report to Knowlton, little did he know that his commander had perished in the midst of combat. You know, here again, folks, no breaking news app alerts. So by the, you know, by the time the letter would have uh, gotten back to Continental Army headquarters, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Knowlton has already perished. Somebody would obviously have to... Um, Somebody would have to. Get, somebody else would have to give the uh, news to Washington, but that's just the um, unfortunate thing about communication back then. I mean, you know, no email, no texting. So, when you received a letter or got the news in a newspaper, yes, it was a couple of weeks old at best, but you were still happy to read the information because even if it was just a few weeks old to you, it's breaking news. So, about 9 a.m. or just afterwards, um, come, September, come September 22nd of 1776, William Cunningham went about ordering Nathan to the gallows where his fate soon awaited him. Gosh. Scary. It's very scary. Where did Nathan march to once leaving Captain Montresor's tent? He marched to an apple orchard not far from present-day 3rd Avenue and 66th Street, where he would be executed. The two letters that Nathan had written earlier with the intent of getting sent to uh, the proper recipients resulted in the request denied by William Cunningham. As a matter of fact, folks, Cunningham went as far as confiscating the letters. So... <laughs> Nathan Hale never got to see the letters go to their uh, proper recipients. Cunningham escorted the prisoner to the apple tree, but um, did get assistance from Captain John Montresor, along with multiple armed soldiers and a slave. Multiple men and women from Huntington joined in the procedure by escorting the captive rebel spy to the apple orchard. You know, we do have to be reminded, folks, that even in colonial times, public hangings were a big deal. And most notably in uh, J Jamestown and in colonial Williamsburg, it, and, it was, and it was the same elsewhere, too, in colonial America. I know most notably even in Salem, Massachusetts, during the witchcraft trials, that uh, when someone was sentenced to die by hanging, the whole town showed up. There were probably reasons for it. One reason I can think of was that by watching this public execution take place, it is to serve as a reminder for you as an individual and for others within the greater community not to make the same mistakes that, say, Tom Jones or John Smith made. Uh, I've learned many of times in Colonial Williamsburg that if, uh, say, John Smith um, stole Tom Jones's um, tools, 
Tom, uh, John Smith would have uh, been found guilty for theft. And as a means of punishment, uh, a branding would have taken place. Would have been either uh, the branding would have either been on the hand or on, um, say, a thumb. But they would have had the letter T, T for theft. And long story short, if John Smith made the same mistake again by stealing someone else's um, materials, death by hanging. So, you know, the sad part is is that Nathan Hale didn't make any mistakes before. But this time he made one. And that one mistake, sadly, is now going to cost him his life. Would there be any formal ceremony prior to Nathan's execution? No. No formal ceremonies, folks. However, um, Provost Marshal William Cunningham did ask Nathan if he had any final personal thoughts or reflections on life right before the inevitable would take place. This is where um, we've got to do a lot of hard thinking here, folks. I mean, we've already had to do a lot of hard thinking, but I think this takes it up more than just a notch here. What do many historians or researchers believe might have been Nathan Hale's last words leading up to his death come late morning Sunday, September 22, 1776? We're not for sure, again, what he might have said, but we have to, we have to conjure up um, a sentence. And not just a sentence, but the words. Because the words are what can tell the story not just tell the story, but the words themselves can um, either have inspiration or they are to serve as a reminder of uh, one's uh, sacrifice behind a failed mission that ultimately is now going to take their life. Here's what historians think Nathan Hale probably said. And this is in quotations, folks. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Well, I can tell you this much. There's more than one answer behind this um, question or behind this uh, phrase or sentence or remark of Nathan's. I came up with a, a couple of um, different um, theories, not theories, but uh, answers behind what Nathan Hale probably said just moments before his death when he said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. For Nathan Hale, his final moments alive centered around the fact that there, would, that there wouldn't be another day to go forward with pertaining to the gift of life itself. In other words, you know, life is fragile. Um, it was fragile then, it's fragile today. Uh, we can't take anything for granted. We certainly can't uh, assume that um, that we'll be alive a week from tomorrow. I mean, I you know, again, I'm not living in fear, but we just can't assume that uh, everything is always going to be okay and that nothing can happen to us. Yes, Nathan Hale did not take life for granted. He did everything to the fullest. However, he also knows that the mistakes that have now been made resulting in his capture now means that now simply means that uh, there would not be any chance of a mulligan. 
I know most of you all know what, a, what the term mulligan means, but I'm sure there are a few of you out there who have probably never heard of uh, mulligan. When anyone says, you know, when people say, I'd like to have a mulligan, that means a redo, another try, a.k.a. a second try, or, some, or a phrase that we all say, boy, I'd love to go back, I'd like to go back and do that over again. So, in other words, folks, Nathan Hale's not going to be able to get a second shot at this. All he can pray and hope for is that, um, is that the practice of his spying improves, that if anybody else can go out there behind enemy lines, we'll do a better job than he did. But the regret, but the regret knowing that he's not going to be able to get a second try or a redo is very distressing. And then on top of that, not knowing the fate of Washington's army and whether or not they would live to fight and escape the enemy for another day. In other words, would they still have enough fight left in them between now and the end of 1776 to where um, they're still in it? And come a new year in 1777, the chances of them being able to um, strike a big victory against the enemy might be to their favor given how much uncertainty has uh, unraveled in New York. And the last one, um, I, I'm sure I mentioned something just a few minutes ago, but the last one also would pertain to recognizing the uncertainty behind the artwork of spying, given the practice itself had been frowned upon by the Redcoats, and the practice of spying, given the uncertainty behind it at this point, for Nathan Hale, he's got to wonder whom could prevail in the future with spying on the rebel side where the less like where there would be a less likelihood of getting caught would always prevail versus the opposite, being captured and placed into captivity only to meet a um, a terrible death, being death by hanging. So for me, when I think of what might have been Nathan Hale's last words, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. What I've just given you all in terms of um, examples that revolve around um, Hale's last words, that's what I think of. It's more than just one thing. Is it possible that Nathan requested an alternative form of execution versus death by hanging? More than likely, yes. For Nathan Hale, what he would have liked for was to have been um, gotten shot. In other words, you could blindfold me and just shoot me. I'd rather take that verse. If I was in his shoes, yeah, I would have pleaded for the fact that, look, just shoot me versus hanging me. Shooting me would just be a lot easier, less painful. However, that request got denied, as to be expected. After speaking his last words, Provost Marshal William Cunningham said the following as Nathan stood from a ladder with the rope with rope tied around his neck, in quotations, swing the rebel off. Okay, what this means, folks, is push him forward as the tree branch moves simultaneously, a.k.a. right away, with the prisoner hanging over the tree, over the tree limb in agony. I don't take pleasure in that, folks. But this is what the public saw. 
they saw him be pushed off the ladder, thrown downward with a tree limb hanging as the as Nathan Hale was hanging over the tree limb in agony. One man, um, not long after the uh, Revolutionary War had officially come to an end um, via the Treaty of Paris, 1783, his name was uh, Tunis Bogart. Uh, his first name spelled T-U-N-I-S. He, being a farmer from, from Long Island, he worked for um, the British as a wagon driver. He was present at Nathan's death. He recalled years later how women cried out after fall in the midst of uh, what had taken place. They were sobbing left and right. Robert Rogers lambasted those whom sobbed and cried out. He even told them all to shut up. He even threatened women and men whom were expressing their emotions that if that if you all go against what I have told you all not to do, then you all will meet the same fate as this man. Robert Rogers, folks, yes, he's a loner. He only cares about himself. Remember, folks, he, he was one of those men whom, yes, could be your friend and then all of a sudden turn on you. Um, he really wasn't serving the king like perhaps a true British soldier might have. He was just all in it for the thrill, money. For Robert Rogers, it's all about I, me, myself. Well, for Nathan Hale, folks, you know, you know, when we think of someone dying in today's time, yes, we send them to the morgue so that um, they, their body can either be placed into a casket or in other instances be uh, sent to a crematory uh, facility where their ashes would be cremated and then ultimately, ultimately be placed in an urn. Well, that's not what happened for Nathan Hale, folks. And I don't think that um, Provost uh, Marshal William Cunningham or uh, Robert Rogers would have approved of a dignitary burial for someone whom they saw as a, um, as a coward, all because he had engaged in the practice of spying. For Nathan Hale, he hung, folks, I, I kid you not, this is true, he hung for three days the greater public could view his body for three days hanging even after he had died. People um, poked at his corpse and they spat on it. You can tell where people's loyalties are for those whom are poking and spitting on his body. After about three days, folks, a slave um, cut Nathan's body down and went about burying it. However, um, Nathan Hale's body was so badly decomposed that um, that there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, clothing on his body, and there was no um, other alternative clothing available to um, make him look a little bit more presentable as he was um, buried. But I will tell you this, folks, that um, even though he was buried... There is no official grave for Nathan Hale. He was buried in an unmarked spot. What historians do know is that on present-day 3rd Avenue of New York City, somewhere between 46th and 66th Streets, 
Nathan Hale's body lies somewhere buried underneath the present-day sidewalks. So let's just be reminded, folks, of the fact that not everyone who died in the Revolutionary War got a proper burial. Even those whom were caught spying, traitors to the enemy, that is, they were not uh, always treated humanely. And they, um, of course, not only did they meet an agonizing death, but they um, were not given, they simply were not given proper burials. So given that we don't know exactly where Nathan Hale is buried between 46th and 66th Streets in New York City along uh, present-day 3rd Avenue, what we do know is that um, he, paid, um, he, he paid a price, but yet he, we, knew, we, know that he, um, we know that he didn't take this mission lightly, but we also know that he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time he went into territory that was pro-British, but yet he was snookered into um, being deceived. But it is important to be reminded of the fact that we should never forget what he said and that I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Where does my country go forward now that I'm gone? Will there be a tomorrow for the Continental Army? Will the Continental Army survive this New York campaign? to fight elsewhere, even if the stakes are against them. Well, um, that is all for this um, episode. And um, just be reminded of the fact that uh, freedom isn't free. That even with freedom comes responsibility. Even with freedom comes sacrifice. There are those who have to defend our freedoms, not only here at home domestically, but abroad. When I'm on the air again next, folks, we're going to talk about um, Nathan Hale's brother, Enoch, who was at uh, Yale College with Nathan um, at the same time. We're going to learn about Enoch's um, search. In other words, we're going to have to find out how the Hale family comes to um, grips with the fact that um, not only have they not heard from Nathan in some time, but whether or not Nathan is even still alive. You know, it's one thing to not hear from, um, from someone for a couple of weeks, but when you don't hear from them for a month or two, then you have to wonder, did this uh, family member die on the battlefield or did something else happen that was far beyond dying on the battlefield? Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.